Kyle shared, my name is Kristen, if you didn't catch that. Um, I work with our junior high and high school students, which means I work with our 6th through 12th grade. Um, just a little bit about how I got here, how I became a pastor on staff at Trinity. I felt God's tug on my life to go into ministry when I was really young, when I was 13 years old. And so I began to kind of look into what that might mean for my future. I got my degree in youth ministry at Olivet Nazarene University. It's a little school near Chicago. Um, in the summer between my junior and my senior year, part of the program is that you do a youth ministry internship. So I didn't have any ties to Trinity. Um, there was kind of like a few connections, but I didn't know anyone coming here for the summer of, I think it was 2013. Um, and so I got here, and I was just working under a youth pastor. And so at the time, that youth pastor was Kyle Rainbow, who you just saw on the screen up there. And so I, I can't tell you, I walked into this place, and I felt like it was family. I felt like um, you guys were just like my long-lost family. And as I left, I just began to mourn just, you know, this place that you guys had filled in my life. And I knew that upon graduation that, there wasn't room for me on the payroll, and so I just began inwardly to mourn that. Well, I went back for my senior year at Olivet, and some transitions were made here at Trinity. Um, Kyle took on the role as the lead pastor here, and by the end of my senior year, he had offered me the position of youth pastor here at Trinity. And so it was just really cool to see how God opened that door for me to be back here. It was really my dream job, and I was Honestly, I was dumbfounded that God would give me my dream so early. Um, I mean, I'm not done dreaming, but um, on, in June, it will be five years that I've been here at Trinity. And so it's just amazing to see, you know, what has kind of happened during that time that I've been here. When we come into the new year, one of the things that we do is we reflect and we also look forward. So we reflect on where we've been and we think about where we're going. I just took some of our youth sponsors out for a little Christmas celebration this past Wednesday. And as we were getting ready to leave, one of them said, I'm going to go home and I'm going to set goals with my family. So you guys are familiar with that either as an individual or as a family, maybe you're goal setting, but just looking at where we've come since I've been here. So I have this like snippet of time that I've been here. Some of you have been here a lot longer than me. Um, but one of the things that I really love about our church in these five years that we've been able to accomplish is starting and launching our Compassionate Ministry Center in Power North County. If you don't know, that's what was connected to our affordable Christmas store. It's just this idea of not giving handouts, but of getting a hand up to our neighbors. And you guys as a church have come, along a, come alongside a community where people are leaving, and you've said no. We're not going to do that. We're going to dig our roots deeper. We're going to love our neighbors. And for me personally, um, it's just been awesome to see how you have come alongside my people, my close inner circle. I love our students. I love spending time with them, um, getting to love on them through some of life's most difficult and some of life's most awkward moments, quite frankly. Um, but I also believe in their role here in the church, and I'm thankful to be a part of a community that, that one of our core values here at Trinity is that we will believe in and wholeheartedly invest in young people, and you guys do that. What you guys do when you invest in our young people is you say, hey, 
your life matters. We're glad you're here. What you have to offer matters. And so when we tell our students that, it's almost the exact opposite of what they're hearing from most people. Um, And so when you do that, what you're doing is you're being a very powerful voice and present voice in their life to say, hey, you matter. And so when I got here five years ago, that's the voice that was begun to be spoke over me. I mean, um, I really needed a support system. I left my family in Michigan. My family's visiting today. But I left them, and I left my lifelong friends, and I needed a support system. I needed people to say, hey, what you have to offer matters. We see you. We're glad you're here. And so I'm amazed at how you've loved me. I'm also amazed at how you've loved my fiancé, Wesley. Uh, Wesley is sitting right here. Um, A lot of things are going to change for us in 2019. Um, we are getting married this year. I know, Dan, are you excited? So July 6th, right here, you're invited, okay? So we're going to celebrate our union July 6th, so mark your calendars. But I want to say you guys have been cheerleaders for us as individuals. You have been cheerleaders for us in our relationship. And honestly, I'm super excited to be a wife this year. But more than being a wife, okay, what I'm really excited for is what I've already seen happen between me and Wesley and as I lead our students and just how he's come alongside me and partnered with me in ministry and how you all have just let that happen. That's been awesome. So a lot of you don't know Wesley super well, um, but he's kind of a nerd. And if you talk to Wesley... You're probably like, oh my goodness, Kristen. (laughs) He doesn't, he's already learned that like when you give me a microphone, I'm going to talk about the people I know and what's happened in my life. So he's just like perpetually a sermon illustration and that's just the deal. Um, But if you ask Wesley, he would say there's no kind of about it. I am a nerd. Um, And so he has his degree in math and statistics from the University of Arkansas. He is passionate about it. I do not understand Um, But that's okay. Um, He's also kind of a church nerd. Okay, so he loves hymns. He loves tradition. He loves the church calendar. Do you know anybody like this? Okay. Some of you are like, I know Wesley, so yes. Um, So, like, to give you a sense, um, I'm kind of in an interesting situation. They sold the condo that I was living in, and so I'm now currently living with Alan and Gina Dixon, Um, and so, but I have a bedroom there, and Wesley has an apartment here, so instead of moving all my stuff into Alan and Gina's, I moved all my stuff over to Wesley's apartment, so all my Christmas decorations, and so it's just been this, like, jigsaw, because we are, we were fully functioning adults with two-bedroom apartments of our own, and now it's like, okay, do you really want this? Can you get rid of this? So we're just kind of you know, figuring out what fits in the apartment, and so that's where we're going to live after we're married, but so all my Christmas decorations are over there, because I spend a lot of time over there, so I as well put them up, so I I inherited this awesome set of, um, this awesome nativity set, it's Fontanini, um, it's just like this really cool little figurines, and so 
I was setting it up, and I had this crash that my grandpa built, and it's just, like, really cool to me, and it really a family thing for me, and so um, I said, Wesley, why don't you kind of help me set this up, wouldn't you do that? And so he's like, okay, so we start unboxing things, and he gets to the wise men, and almost, like, unprompted, takes the wise men out and puts them not near the manger, but he puts them, like, on this really far-off shelf. And I was like, okay, like, get it? This is your apartment. But I think, like, if we just move the shepherds over a little, I, don't, I think there's enough space here. Like, this is, <laughs> this is the same piece of furniture that I've been putting this manger scene on, and so I, I think we're going to be good. And he's like, no, I put them over here on this shelf because that's where they go. And I was like, love ya. Been setting up this nativity for a little bit now, and I think I know. And he said, well, we don't celebrate the wise men seeing Jesus until Epiphany. And so when I was growing up, me and my dad, every day after Christmas, would take turns moving the wise men just a little bit closer to the manger until Epiphany when they're there. It's these moments that this sage words of advice of my mom growing up, she always said this. She said, what whispers at you while you're dating screams at you when you're married. (laughs) Basically, if you can't handle this now, you might just want to think about what you're getting yourself into. Just might, just, it's just going to wear. So just, you know, be aware, Kristen. So, no, but I love Wesley's passion for God and for the church, and I've seen that benefit my ministry. He is my biggest encourager in ministry, and I love getting to bounce my ideas off of him with the students. And so when Kyle asked me to speak a few weeks ago, Wesley was like, great. That Sunday is the epiphany. And that's where you would teach either on um, the wise men coming to, you know, we celebrate the wise men coming to see Jesus, or the baptism of Jesus, yeah, or the baptism of Jesus. I'll just have you know that when I walked into Wesley's apartment this morning, the wise men were looking at the baby. <laughs> I was like, this, this runs really deep, this church nerd thing. Um, so today, I thought I would do um, what Wesley suggested in the tradition of um, sticking with the calendar and looking at Epiphany, that we would take a look at the baptism of Jesus and we're going to look at what God might say to us through that. So I'm going to just pray real quickly. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to be with my people, with my family. But I just ask as I'm up here that you would just go ahead and move me aside. That you would help me to be your mouthpiece. That you would help me to communicate your message. But that people would stop seeing me and that they would start seeing what you have for them. What you have for their lives. We just ask that your spirit would come upon this place. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen. So for those of you that might be new to church, when we're talking about the life of Jesus, we're going to be looking um, not at the beginning of the Bible. Everything points to Jesus. But when we're looking at the life of Jesus, we're going to be looking at the Gospels, which is when the New Testament starts. So we're going to be looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's where you would look. 
And so basically what happens here, gospel, let me just say real quick, gospel, another interchangeable phrase that you could use for gospel is good news. So we just celebrated Jesus coming, um, and that's good news. That's the good news of Jesus. And so um, after years of silence between God and his people, Jesus is coming, and he's breaking the silence for the Israelites, his people. Finally, what he's promised is here. What has been foretold about in the prophets, with the prophets hundreds of years ago, is coming to pass. The Son of God, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is here. And so, for those of you that have read the Gospels, what you'll notice is that there's some overlap. That, that there are some stories, there are different people writing, but there are some stories that are told more than once. And what you get the sense of as you read from these different authors, is, as they're witnesses to the life of Jesus, what you get the sense of is, okay, what was, what was important to this person? What was significant to them? And so, um, in varying detail, this is one of those stories in the life of Jesus that is told from every perspective. In varying detail, different, different writers will highlight different things, but I think that's significant. And we can see how significant these writers think this story is by the fact that they all wrote about it. And so we're going to read today from Mark's Gospel. Um, and so I'm actually going to have Kennedy come up and read what we're going to be reading today. Mark 1, 1 through 13. John the Baptist prepares the way. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region, and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Thank you for reading that. The word of God for the people of God. So John, who it talks about, uh, is actually the cousin of Jesus. So John is what kids these days would call, and I know because I'm a youth pastor, so kids these days would call uh, granola or crunchy. Um, those are the kind, some people are laughing because they're like, I know exactly what you're talking about, because then the other people are like, I do not, I'm not tracking. Um, so these are people that like, 
don't wash often maybe, like they just love the earth and like, you know, maybe you know some people like this. Um, He's maybe a little bit of a hipster, if you know that word, but he lived in the wilderness. He ate things like locusts and wild honey. And if he lived today, no scholar has told me this, but if he lived today, I think he would be part of the minimalist movement. Okay? You know, the minimalist movement where they have, like, one T-shirt that they just, like, may wash, may not. But, you know, like, they have, like, capsule wardrobes, and they just have, like, very modern furnitures. They just don't live with things that are excess. And so um, I think that he would be a minimalist. I think that he probably wouldn't believe in deodorant. I think he might not believe in modern medicine. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but you get me. Like, this is the kind of, he's a little different than what everybody else would have been doing in the day. Um, no scholars told me that. That's just, like, what I get when I read this. Um, John was who it talks about in Isaiah, a voice in the desert, a voice in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, what we read in the first section of this reading. John would baptize people in the Jordan River, and he would tell them to repent or to turn from their sin and to seek forgiveness. And people were following John because, as I said, he was a little bit different. And so God had promised his people a Messiah, somebody who would conquer, somebody who would lead the way to him. And a lot of people thought that this Messiah was John. So John very easily could have said, yeah, it's me, thank you, thank you, you know, walk into a room and be, you know, but what John does instead is he points to Jesus, and he says, listen, after me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then the next sentence it says in verse 9, it says, At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. I want you to imagine being John at this moment. Knowing that Jesus was the Son of God, knowing that Jesus was the Messiah, knowing that Jesus was without sin, the whole reason that he's prompting people to get into the water, And Jesus comes up to him and he says, hey, cousin, would you do me the honor of baptizing me? And I think John was like, looking at the different stories that are told in the Gospels, basically the exchange was like, I'm sorry. Um, I was just actually telling them that I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie your sandals. I'm not really sure I can do that. I'm not really sure you need me to do that. This would be like if any Fixer Upper fans in here, HGTV's Fixer Upper, Joanna Gaines, she was lying at Target and really everywhere. Um, It would be like if Joanna Gaines called me on my cell phone and was like, hey, Kristen. And I'd be like, yes. I need you to come down here to Waco, and I need you to decorate my home. Like, I like to decorate, okay? I, I even would go as far to say, boldly to say, that that's part of my skill set. I like to do that. But if Joanna called me on the phone, I'd be like, 
I'm really not sure I could set your table well enough, you know? So John was like, I'm good at baptizing people. That's, I mean, good at however you are at baptizing people. He's like, that's kind of my thing. But, like, you're Jesus. And after a while of that conversation, John's like, okay, you're Jesus. You're the son of God. I'm just going to do what you say. But I've always kind of wondered, okay, why is it important for Jesus to be baptized? Why would he fight John on this? Why is that necessary? What statement is he trying to make? And growing up, the short version that I'd always heard is that Jesus is trying to set an example for us. And honestly, that's never been super compelling to me. I mean, I believe that Jesus was trying to set an example. I believe that Jesus is trying to set an example with his whole life. But I want to believe that Jesus is authentic in everything that he does. Because to me, if you're not authentic, you're manipulative. And I'm not looking to serve a God that's trying to manipulate me. So that always kind of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. Another thing that I read that a lot of scholars initially thought was that Jesus was trying to appease Mary by doing what was good. And that just goes back to that authenticity thing. Like, I am the queen of doing what is good to impress people. Like, that was my childhood. But I want there to be more for Jesus. Don't you want there to be more? So I did a little digging, and I found four main reasons that Jesus would have been baptized. For Jesus, number one, it was this moment of decision. Okay? Have you ever had a moment of decision? One of those moments that you think, okay, this is it. This is my big move. My time has come. Maybe it's going back to school. Maybe it's starting a business. Maybe it's deciding to quit working and to stay home with your kiddos. For me, it was moving to St. Louis most recently. This moment of decision, it was my dream job. But I don't know, um, I don't know if I mentioned this. When when Kyle offered me the job, it was a part-time job. And so I don't know that many people that would move across the country for a part-time job. So I had to make that decision to move away from my friends and my family. For Jesus, this would have been his moment where he was deciding, okay, my time has come. I am the one John has been preparing the way for. Am I going to step into where I feel the Lord calling me? Am I going to leave what is safe and what is comfortable and answer the summons and the challenge of God? Nazareth was his home. He was leaving what was comfortable, what he knew, his immediate family, etc., to go to Galilee to be baptized. This moment of decision. For Jesus, this was also a moment of identification. At the time, there was this unprecedented hunger for God amongst people. 
the people had been waiting for this intersection between them and God. And you can see by the fact that John was baptizing people in the Jordan that people were beginning to come to grips with their sin, their need for saving. So people would have been identifying themselves with God by being baptized. And when Jesus is baptized, he identifies himself with people. When I think of identification, I think of sports fans. I'm not, let's say, I didn't used to be a watcher of sports. I mean, I had my teams that I would cheer for. Um, but I'm really more of a sports fan by proximity, you know, when I'm with people that are rooting for their teams. But Wesley, he's a sports guy. And one of the things, um, one of the things is he loves the Cardinals. Um, but he also loves, as a University of Arkansas alum, he loves the Arkansas Razorbacks. Does anyone know what a Razorback is? Okay, so it's like a wild hog. So um, when we first began dating, I began to understand how deep this pride ran for him. When he took me home and to his home state, and we went to an Arkansas football game, and there was this sea of red, and, and you guys, some of you have been to state school football games, um, so you get it, you already know. Um, I haven't been to a lot of state school football games, and so you might not know that there's like a thing that every school has, something that they do. And so Wesley's like, I'm going to teach you how to call the hogs. And I was like, okay. Um, So I looked up on YouTube, what does it mean to call the hogs? And I got this terrifying video of this woman like, in a hog calling competition, like, I was like, oh my goodness, no, please don't let that be what he's talking about. And it's not, but I'll spare you from what it actually is. I'm sure that Wesley would love to do it for you if you want to talk to him after. Um, But it's basically this yell slash chant, screech even, um, that everyone knows that's a part of that, that group. Um, and it's, it's kind of like this idea that we're going to do this together and we're identifying ourselves with each other. We're saying, these are my people. And so somewhere, sometimes when we're walking around St. Louis, Wesley will be wearing an Arkansas shirt and you'll hear like somebody way off say, woo pig, because they want to identify themselves with that team. It's this association with what you think matters. So Jesus is associating himself with the people because he believes they matter. For Jesus, baptism was also a moment of approval. Me and I need approval a lot. I really struggle with needing approval. I think God, Jesus looks to the right place for approval. Um, Jesus decides that this course of action, he's, he's going to take hold of the call that God has placed on him, that he's going to publicly identify himself with the God of Jacob, with the people that are looking for him. And Jesus looks for God's approval. And God meets Jesus in the water. The heavens are torn open, and it says, And a voice came from heaven. 
you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And as I was exploring these words, I found that there are two phrases here that kind of stand alone. If you look at Psalms 2, written hundreds of years before Jesus is getting baptized, this language of sonship is used. In Psalm 2-7, it says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. In this moment where God says, you are my son, what he's saying is he's sealing Jesus as his son in that moment. The other thing that he says in the second part of the phrase is, with you I am well pleased. And this would have referred to the words of Isaiah, and any good Jew would have really known the ideas of Isaiah. In Isaiah 42, it says, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. In this short statement that God is speaking to Jesus, he's saying, Jesus, you are my son, and through you I will conquer. I am well pleased with you. This would have been a moment very personal to Jesus, very authentic to Jesus. See, what God would reveal in this moment would assure Jesus what was said in front of him. He would know that the cross was in front of him. He would know that he was supposed to step into this calling. Lastly, for Jesus, baptism would have been this moment of equipment. Just like it said in Isaiah 42, let me read that again. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and I will bring justice to the nations. In this moment is the moment that Jesus, that God's spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. The spirit that will equip him to do what God is calling him to do. And it comes down in this very specific simile. The dove, the symbol of peace. If you'll remember... Um, if you grew up in the church, you're familiar with the story of Noah and the ark. And, and after the floods came and they're in this ark, they send out a dove. And the dove returns with an olive branch. And it's to show that there's land here. You know, it's, this isn't going to be forever. And the dove symbolizes this peace that they were feeling in the midst of this death and destruction. The Spirit of God descends like a dove might descend because it is gentle, it is peaceful, and it's meant to communicate this kind of kingdom that, that Jesus was coming to bring about. I don't know about you, but that kind of excites me. That it's going to look a little bit different than we thought. As one of my favorite commentators, Bill, William Barclay, writes, Jesus will conquer. But the conquest will be the conquest of love. Not only did God send Jesus to rescue the Jewish people, but the people that didn't feel like they had any access to God. What's interesting about the Jews is that they wouldn't have felt the need to be baptized at all. 
So the fact that Jesus is Jewish is another thing that we have to make note of. As Barclay says, no Jew would have ever conceived that he, a member of God's chosen people, could ever be a sinner shut out from God. So what Jesus did in his baptism was for the Gentiles or those who were not Jewish to grab a hold of. Because going back to Isaiah 42, where it tells about the Messiah, if we skip down a few verses to verse 6, it says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open the eyes that are blind. To free captives from prison. And to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Jesus makes this decision through baptism that he is going to bring about the new kingdom that is inclusive of everyone. And the way that he's going to conquer the current situation of the world isn't with a sword, which we would expect, but it's with gentleness and with peace just like the spirit that's within him. With Jesus, there is always room for one more at the table. What a moment for Jesus to start his ministry with. What a moment. This moment of decision, identification, approval, and equipment... I don't know if you've ever had a moment encouraging like this. Have you ever had a really encouraging moment? I don't know if some of you guys might know this, but Wesley and I met online. We met on eHarmony. This is not a plug. Some, it works for some people. It doesn't work for other people. But that's just our story. And he has a degree in math and was working for this really awesome company as a data analyst in Memphis. So it was about a five-hour trek between us. We were long distance. And so we would just take turns on weekends. He really would come here more often because I have to be here on Sundays. Um, but we just did that for about a year. And very early on in our relationship, though, I said to him, listen, I really feel like God has provided everything for me to be here. I have friends that have become family. I am deeply rooted in this community. And I'm not really looking for someone to uproot that. So there came a point in our relationship where we decided that someone was going to have to move if we were going to continue this relationship. And by someone, I mean Wesley. <laughs> So about in April last year, after a particularly hard goodbye, Wesley made this decision that he was going to move. And several months of job hunting, he finally landed a job here in St. Louis. He got a U-Haul, and he moved himself up. He got himself an apartment here in North County. And like I said, we had been long distance for about a year, so we were just thrilled. 
we just thought, this is, this is another one of those moments. We were just so excited. But things were not as easy as we wanted them to be. Wesley had this awesome job in Memphis. I mean, just really cool. They just treated their employees so well. And he was used to it, you know. So he gets to his new job, and there's a huge learning curve. And he's beginning to feel this pressure of contrasting his old position with his new position, his old position that he knew really well to his new position where, again, he's the new guy. He knows no one. Um, And I, struggling with depression and anxiety, had a really hard time with the transition. I knew what it looked like for us to, you know, be together on weekends, but it was a really big deal to change from, you know, being in the same city limits. So I began to be really kind of overwhelmed by this new pressure of doing life together in the same city. And I became really hard for Wesley to connect with. I had just asked this man that I loved to move even, even further from his family, and I couldn't be the support system that he needed when he got here. Wesley, in those early days, was in a position where he was made to feel really alone. And sometimes our moments of encouragement are quickly met with these types of roadblocks. I want you to notice that Jesus' moment of decision identification, approval, and equipment, his baptism, which he felt so encouraged by, was quickly met by one of these roadblocks. As Mark's gospel continues in verse 12 and 13, it said, immediately after, it says, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. No sooner had this beautiful path been laid before Jesus through baptism than was he in the desert being tempted by Satan. This kind of bothered me. I mean, it says that Satan tempted Jesus says that Satan does the tempting, but the Spirit sent him there. It says that. And I just want to know, why would, why would the Spirit put him in that, decision, in that position? Man. The name of the particular wilderness that Jesus was in literally would translate to the devastation it was this place of yellow sand and crumbling limestone, hills that were like dust heaps. Nothing really grew there because nothing really could. This would have been a place where Jesus was all alone, where he felt all alone. And if you look at the Greek, the original language in Mark's gospel, it 
it would have really been a word, the word that we translate to tempt is really to test. So he's being tested by Satan. Why would the Spirit take Jesus out to the wilderness to be tested? I mean, I don't know. There's, when we change it to, to test, I feel like there's a little bit of, there's always a negative connotation when we talk about tempting. I don't really like that. But to test, Je- Jesus goes out and he's tested, and he finds out what he's going to be up against. And the reason that he's up out there is to kind of set him straight before anything even happens. It doesn't destine him for failure. It shows the power of the Father to overcome. He doesn't need to be with people to have the advice of others. He needs to be ready to know the truth of who God is and what God has for him to do. No matter what the situation is going to look like. He needs to know the power of God even when the voice of the enemy has grown loud. Maybe today you need to take a a hold of your moment. Maybe today you need to make a decision. Maybe today you need to make an identification with something. Maybe today you you need to look for the approval of God. Maybe those things need to happen. Maybe today you need to ask for God's equipment. You know what God is asking you to do, but you need God to equip you to do it. And maybe today, you find yourself in a place where the voice of the enemy has grown loud. Maybe your heart longs for a seat at God's table, but you're not even sure if this whole Jesus thing is for real, and you're weary of searching. Maybe you've experienced moments of hope and encouragement And today is just not one of those days. I always tell my students, following Jesus is not always rainbows and roses. Wouldn't it be nice? But today, my prayer for you, my challenge to you, is that you will let the truth remain. That God has given us Jesus. God with us, that he has promised to baptize us with the fire of his Holy Spirit, his spirit that is gentle and loving and equips us to walk in peace in the midst of dry land. Father God, I pray today that you will work on our hearts wherever we are. I thank you for the fact that this is a church, a body of believers where we can belong, maybe even before we believe. I pray for those people that sit amongst us today. 
they're just for now looking for a place to belong. Father God, if, if there are decisions that we need to make, if there are identifications that we need to make, would you help us to make those decisions? Would you help us to identify? Lord, if there is approval that we need from you, would you help us to have your approval or let us know what we need to change? Would you equip us today, God, to walk in the direction that you're asking us to walk? For those of us that are in the desert, where the enemy's voice has grown loud, would you just encourage our hearts? Would you help us to know the truth? We love you.